can't believe that little girl is a senior. Amen. And uh, praise the Lord. Thank you, Miss Heidi, Miss Robin, for your ministry to us, Brother Eric. In the book of Hebrews, where we are today, the reader discovers that there are three different occasions where we find something set before us or prepared. If you go back in Hebrews, and we're going to do a little bit of walking through our Bibles today, but go back to Hebrews chapter 6. And by the way, the theme of the book of Hebrews is how that Jesus is better. Every chapter that you read of Hebrews, you find he's better than the angels, he's better than the prophets, he's better than Moses, he's better than the priests. He's better than the sacrificial offerings. He's better because he's God Almighty. Amen. And in Hebrews chapter 6, it tells us there in verse number 17, or verse 16, it says, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So this is about men who make an agreement. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability, that is the fact that God does not change, of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, and all God's people said, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. The hope set before us there is what? It is refuge. Refuge. And it says, which hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Uh, many of us know this idea that, that the hope of refuge is set before us. What is that? But if you remember the story in the Old Testament, there is uh, uh, the, the account that is given of when uh, the children of Israel were getting ready to go into the promised land. It's in Numbers chapter 35. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 19. And then later it would be in Joshua of what are called the cities of refuge. And what they were, they were six strategically placed cities in Israel where someone who accidentally murdered someone, I say murdered, killed. So, and they give an example that you're swinging an axe and the axe head flies off and hits somebody. He didn't mean to do it. But the man is dead, and the family is seeking vengeance and retribution. That that person could flee to one of those six cities. And once he was in the city, he was safe. You know, he didn't, he didn't come out, amen? He was safe in the city until the year of Jubilee, and he would be released. And that city of refuge was a place of safety where the guilty could go. Aren't you glad Jesus Christ is our city of refuge? Where the guilty sinner can go and where the law chases us with a sword demanding vengeance, Jesus, that city of refuge, gives us safety. So refuge is set before us. I, by the way, I love the fact that those cities were prearranged by God. 
Those cities were provided shelter for the guilty. They were plainly marked out and they were perfect, perfectly acceptable or accessible to all. You know what it says about Jesus? It says he was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He provides shelter for the guilty. That song Madison just sung. I'll tell you what. No condemnation. Romans 8.1. No separation. Romans 8.39. For the, for the sinner in Christ. Amen. Plainly marked out. Oh, I think about how Jesus came and he showed, showed all. He was full of grace and truth. Showed all that he was God Almighty. And then I think about pur purposefully accessible to all. You know what the Bible says in 2 Peter 3.9? It says, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said, I'm the door. If any man enter in by me, he shall be saved. That door is not closed. It's open for all. Amen. And so Jesus Christ is the city of refuge. He is the only one in which we can place our hope. Isn't he? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. But then in our text in Hebrews chapter 12, we see two other items that are set before us, or set before, prepared. And we'll spend most of our time on this second one. And that is in verse number 1. It says, Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the what? The race that is what? Set before us. So not only is refuge set before us, but there is a race that is set before us. Often in the New Testament, and particularly the Apostle Paul, which, by the way, there's always been some theological debate about who the earthly writer of Hebrews is. And I happen to think it's Paul, and one of the reasons I do think it's Paul is because of this passage that we read today, because he deals with this idea of the race. So, uh, meaning a, a race that we're running here. And so the Apostle Paul would reference and use uh, the, the Greek games. There were games called the Isthmian Games. From those became the Olympic Games that came from that. And, and Paul would use athletics as a metaphor, as an illustration of the Christian life. Go back with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians, and we'll, we'll take some right turns here, and we'll go back to Hebrews chapter 12 in just a moment. But 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. uses athletics and particularly runners and races. Running a race. And here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you look at verse number 24, are we there? Say amen. amen. It says, Know ye not that they which run in a, ra in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So he's giving the illustration here. He says, uh, all those runners start out, but only one gets the blue ribbon. Right? And then he tells us, so run that ye may obtain. How many of you remember the old coach, Vince Lombardi? Yeah. This was part of his coaching philosophy right here, this verse. He, he said, run to win. 
one to win. So then it says in verse 25, And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. See, the winner of this race, the winner of this, these games would get many times a little wreath that would go on their head, and they called it a corruptible crown. Why? Because in a few days it would be all dead. Those leaves would be. But he said, we do it as Christians to obtain an incorruptible crown. That, that God will, will, never, will, will never lose, amen? And so he goes on here, uh, verse number 26, he says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest by any means that I preach others I should be cast away. We're going to get into that in the applications here, but he, he gives the illustration here of uh, running and, and running to win. Okay, so take a right turn and go to Galatians. So you have 1 Corinthians, then you have 2 Corinthians, then you have Galatians. Galatians, similar passage here. Not only running to win, but in Galatians 2.2. 2, I still hear pages turning. It must be fall. I hear the leaves rustling. Amen. That's all right. Look at Galatians 2.2. It says, And I went up by revelation and communicated unto them that the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to them which are of reputation, lest by any means I should run or had run what? In vain. So he gives us the illustration here, not only of running to win, but, but run, not running in vain. It's like, I, I want to be effective with the gospel. Okay, Galatians 5, 7. So just over probably a couple of pages. Galatians 5, 7. Great chapter of the Word of God. Galatians chapter 5. Many of you know the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. You have the, you have the fruit of the flesh in this chapter and contrasted. And you have the flesh lusteth against the Spirit. Verse 7 tells us, Paul said, You did run well. Who did hinder you? that ye should not obey the truth. So he, he talks about running to win. He talks about uh, running not in vain. He talks about running and not being hindered in your race. We'll talk about that a little bit in our message today from Hebrews chapter 12. Then go over to Philippians. So you have Galatians, Ephesians, and then Philippians, small books, probably just a page each there. Philippians chapter 3. We know this verse. So this is a, uh, an oft-used verse on Honor the Graduate Sunday. These verses in Philippians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Here's the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest Christian that the world has ever known. And I love what he says here. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. You know what he said? He really said, I don't think I'm great at all. Yeah. By the way, that's the sign of somebody that is great. Yeah, that they don't toot their own horn and boast how great they are. He says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. Here it is. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. What do we see there? We see running toward the finish line. Running towards the finish line with a, with a goal in mind. Didn't Paul say that in 2 Timothy chapter 4? He said, I have fought a good fight. 
I finished my course. I've kept the faith. So running towards the finish line. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. So you've got Colossians. Then you've got the Thessalonian brothers. Amen. And then you have 1 Timothy and then 2 Timothy. These are all short books. But so much in these books. This one, I wish this was preached in more churches today. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4 and 5, especially verse 4, talks about no man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life and may please him with chosen to be a soldier. But then he moves from soldier to athlete in verse 5. He said, and if a man strive for masteries, he is not crowned except he strive lawfully. So what does that mean, Pastor? That means you've got to run within the rules of the race. And you know where the rules for the race are laid out? Right here. Right here. This book. Amen? So running within the rules. And then 2 Timothy 4, 8. 2 Timothy 4, 8. I love this. Because here's Paul in verse 7. He says, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. He's getting ready to be martyred. Getting ready to lose his head at Rome's acts. But he says this. Henceforth there is laid up for me a what? A crown of righteousness. Which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And I love the back half of this verse. And not to me only, but unto all them also that love is appearing. That's you and I. If we're looking forward to the appearing of the Lord, living for Christ, trying to mortify the deeds of this flesh. What do we see here? We see running and being rewarded for your race. So, back to Hebrews chapter 12. We see refuge set before us in chapter 6, verse 18. We see the race that is set before us. And we're going to focus on, on running our race here. But then in verse 2, we see something else set before someone else. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was what? Hmm. Endured the cross despising the shame is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Here we are told that Jesus endured the cross and part of what helped him to endure the cross was rejoicing. Not only refuge, not only race, but rejoicing. The joy that was set before him helped him get through the awful hours of agony on the cross from 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. What, what was that joy? What was that joy that helped Jesus, that was set before him, that he endured the cross? I'll tell you exactly what the Bible says it is. You know what Paul said to the church at Philippi? These people that he had reached with the gospel, you know what he called them? He called them my joy and crown. And then later in Thessalonians, he would say, he would say, are ye not me, speaking to the Thessalonian believers, are ye not ye my joy 
And in Isaiah chapter 53, verse uh, number 10 through 12, the Bible says that that Jesus, uh, the the, the Son and the Father would divide the spoil one day because he had laid down his life and he had made the payment. Can I tell you what the joy that helped Jesus endure the cross was? It was you. It was you. It was me. It was those of us that would believe on his name. And he knew that we were hell-deserving sinners. And yet, because of what he was about to do, we would end up in heaven. Amen. Rejoicing. Rejoicing. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, Revelation 1.5 says. The context of our message today is found in the previous chapter. Hebrews chapter 11 at the beginning of this year, I think I preached... Uh, 14 messages out of Hebrews chapter 11. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, we see faith's definition. Faith's definition. And it's found there in verse 1. It says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I like what W.A. Criswell said, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas for over 60 years. He said this, Faith is the solid, unshakable confidence in God, which is built on the assurance that He will be faithful to His promises. Amen, amen, and amen. When I read this book, I read it in faith, knowing that these are the very promises of God, and God will keep His word. So we see faith's definition. We see faith's declaration in verse number 2. For by it, the it being faith, the elders obtained what? A good report. A good report. So that's faith's declaration. It was by faith. We'll look at that here in, in uh, uh, just a, a moment. But the, the declaration... By the way, when you and I get to heaven, the only declaration we have is our faith. Because you know what? I can just speak for myself, but start when I get to heaven, and I will get to heaven because I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior. When I get to heaven... I'll, I'll not have anything to boast about. No. I didn't get here of my own accord. I didn't get here of my own merit. Matter of fact, God worked out all the little details to help me to the cross. So I would trust Him. Now, I'm no Calvinist. I believe you still have free will. So I had to make a choice, amen? But I want to tell you this. When I saw the goodness of God, the choice got easier. So the declaration of faith, the definition of faith. How about the deduction of faith in verse number 3? Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the Word of God. So that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. What does that mean, Pastor? That means in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. If you're a Christian. 
If you've trusted Christ, if you have faith in God, you look, you look around and realize this stuff didn't all just appear out of nothing like is taught in our schools. The deduction of faith. What's the deduction? God is the creator. God is the designer. God is the organizer. God is the sustainer. And it all belongs to God, including me. Then in verses 4 through 40, and we'll not read all these verses, we see not only the definition of faith and the declaration of faith and the deduction of faith, but we see the deeds of faith. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham went forward. By faith, the walls of Jericho came down. By faith, uh, David did this and Jephthah did that and Barak did that. Amen. By faith, the deeds of faith. And it brings us, we finish all the deeds of faith in chapter 11 and, and really goes through verse 40. And it brings us to our text. And we're going to look at three things. We have some sub-points today. But we're going to look at, number one, the cloud of witnesses. Number two, the command to runners. And number three, the consideration to all. And then we'll look at some applications today. Number one, notice with me the cloud of witnesses. It says, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. So the first question that comes to mind about these witnesses is, who are they? Now again, I am not opposed to this at all. An application. An application, uh, particularly in regards to Scripture, can apply to various people, groups, all that. But application and interpretation are different. An application of this would be those that we have known who have died in Christ and gone on before us. I, wouldn't, I am not opposed one bit to that application. I've, heard, I've had people ask me, listen, I know my dad's in heaven. Is he looking down on me? And my answer is always perhaps. Perhaps. He might be, forgive me, and my other answer is always this way to start. He might be so struck with heaven that he's just walking around all like this. Forgive me, he doesn't have time to look down on this earth. So an application, certainly those who have died and gone on. But I believe that the proper interpretation of this is those heroes of the faith that we have just read about in chapter 11. Those heroes of the faith. Those Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and, and all these. Why? Because these cloud of witnesses, it says, they compass us. And so, again, the idea here, he's going to explain to us that we are all involved in a race. And it is much like, if you've ever watched the Olympics, amen, and that, that final leg of the marathon where they come into the stadium. And that whole crowd is. And he said, they, they compass us. We, we had this idea like we, these, these heroes of the faith and these heavenly bleachers in there, they're compassing us. But not only do they compass us, but they cheer us on. They encourage us. By the way, thank God for encouragers. I, I preached last night at a, a men's meeting and I preached the message I had preached here last Sunday on a few good men. And the more 
I, I uh, just meditate on that message and think about that text, the more I love Barnabas. I love Paul, but I love Barnabas. Even today, looking at uh, uh, this, uh, yesterday rather, the study Bible notes uh, for the Rice Reference Bible, it talked about how when uh, Paul was Paul was just you know he had gone through a lot in Acts chapter eleven, and Barnabas went looking for him. That was before God had ever called them to mission work. Barnabas just went looking for. Hey, listen, these these witnesses they encourage us. They encourage us. They, they compass us. They cheer us. And you know what else? I, I really believe the interpretation is uh, the, the, the ones here in, in Hebrews chapter 11 is because they convince us. See, what do you mean they convince us? They convince us that we can do it. You know what? I don't know about you. I have failed God too many times in my life to even count. And I certainly wouldn't count them in front of you. <laughs> But you know what? You know what I realize about these heroes of the faith? There's only two that you could look at and say, Abel and Enoch, there's nothing negative said about them at all. But everybody else on that list, forgive me, failed. Abraham's the father of the faithful, isn't he? Listen. He committed a lie that I've never committed. You know what he said about his wife? He said, oh, uh, she's my sister. Why? Because he thought the Egyptians would kill him. Thought he'd just dispose of him and take his wife. So he, he lied in cowardice, didn't he? Isaac did the same thing. Jacob, we don't have time to discuss the rascal that Jacob was. Amen. Oh, you can go on. How about Rahab? Rahab's in that list of the faith. Rahab the harlot is her name. How about David? Man after God's own heart, yeah. Killed one of his own mighty men and committed adultery with that man's wife, amen. And I, I'm, not, I'm not excusing sin at all, but I'm saying this, that here are these heroes of the faith and they're in heaven cheering us on and they're saying, look, we did it through faith, you can do it through faith. Never forget, again, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is the prophet Elijah. I love Elijah. He just comes up to Ahab and says, it's not going to rain until I say, big boy. God hides him, amen. And then the next time we see him, he calls down fire. But then the next time we see him after that, he's under a juniper tree and saying, God, why don't you just kill me? You know what James 5.17 says about Elijah? He was a man of like passions. I love that statement, Brother Ken. I love that statement. You know what it means? We're all made of the same stuff. You cut us, no matter the pigment of your skin, you cut us, we all blue blood. We all struggle against sin. We all think our faith is small. And these, these, this cloud of witnesses, they compass us, they chew us, and they convince us that we can do it. If they can do it, we can do it. So, there's the cloud of witnesses. And then, secondly, there's the commands to runners. Not only the cloud of witnesses, but the commands to runners. Look at the, the verses here. This is, it's all Bible today, and, and some, some messages aren't all Bible, but boy, this one today, there's just so much there. If you look at verse 1, it says, Wherefore, seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, and then he begins to give us some commands. Let us lay aside 
every what? Wait. Now, if you've ever seen real long-distance runners, you've never seen one of them running in a snowsuit. Huh? Looking like the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Never see that. No, forgive me. They, they almost run immodestly so. Amen. As Christians, you got whoa. What? Really, they, they, I mean, t-shirt, running shorts are some of the lightest material that you could ever. And and they they don't have any weights on their their ankles. I mean, they've got the lightest shoes. They lay aside weights. Can I say this in our Christian life? Weights are things that aren't necessarily sinful. I remember years ago getting a friend of mine gave me a gospel track. And uh, it wasn't a salvation track, but it was it was a, a life track. And it was, I'll never forget it, it was, Others may, you cannot. Others may, you cannot. And I read that, and I remember reading through that. I was in Bible college at the time. And, and I have, again, I've not always lived up to that ideal, but I have tried to say, you know what? Others may, but I can't do that. As a pastor, you, forgive me, you may do some things as a Christian that I cannot do as your pastor. Now again, I happen to think it's a pretty fair scale. If I don't do it, maybe you shouldn't do it. But I know this as a pastor, pastors get hold to, we live in the goldfish bowl. That's part of, our, part of our calling, part of our life. But I think about that in regards to weights. And this idea of, you may have some things in your life that are not necessarily sinful. But if you're going to run the race that is set before you, you need to lay those aside. You need to say, for, for Christ, for, for His race, I'm going to lay these aside. And again, I don't know what those are. I, 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 it varies from person to person as far as what we're... I do know this. Sometimes weights can become sin. Which is probably why the apostle here told us to lay them aside. But then not only does he give the command to, first of all, lay aside weights, but then he says this, and the sin which doth so easily beset us. So not only are we to lay aside weights, but we're to leave sin behind. You know, one of the great problems in this world today is that pulpits have been quiet about sin. Pulpits will not name sin anymore, and therefore people are walking around, God's people not knowing what is sin and what isn't. By the way, you do have the Holy Spirit living inside you if you are a Christian. He is the one that convinces us of sin, amen. But I think about this, and I think about, what is the besetting sin here? And again, there's this theological debate about what is the besetting sin, what isn't the besetting sin. A lot of people believe that for the Hebrews, the besetting sin was uh, going back to the law and, and trying to mix Christianity and Judaism, like keeping the law and faith, and that certainly would be a besetting sin. Uh, some people believe the besetting sin here is unbelief, because unbelief is the mother of all sins. Very true. But by way of application, I think each one of us could say, each one of us has a besetting sin that hinders us from running our race. By the way, sometimes it's the sin of the flesh. 
most times it's a sin of the heart. It's a lack of surrender. It's a lack of forgiveness. It's bitterness that gets in there. It hews us. From a, it literally is like strapping weights all over our bodies. So he says, not only uh, do, you, do you need to lay aside weights, you need to leave sin behind. But he tells us we need to lastingly run as well. What does he say at the end of verse 1? Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with what? Patience. Patience the race that is set before us. That word patience has the idea of endurance. Endurance. Listen, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's a marathon. Forgive me, I've known some sprinters. I've been saved almost 30 years now. This February will be 29 years that I came to Christ and dove in with both feet as a 23-year-old young man. My wife and I did. I've seen plenty of sprinters. I mean, you want to talk about, they come to every visitation for a month. And then the FBI can't find them. I'm telling you, I've, I have seen it happen countless times. People get hot as a flame. And then the flame goes out and they go out. He's telling us here, the race that's set before you, it's a lifetime race. It's a lot. You know, we don't, we don't preach as much as we should in, 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 in Fundamental Baptist churches on enduring. Because we, we say, well, we don't believe in the perseverance of the saints and the fact that you've got to persevere, hang on to the end to be saved. And we don't believe that, amen. But we do believe that God wants us to run and live a life that pleases Him all of our lives. So, He tells us to lastingly run. He tells us to leave sin behind. He tells us to lay aside weights. But you know what the key command is? Is the beginning of verse 2. Not only lay aside weights, not only leave sin behind, not only lastingly run, but looking unto Jesus. You know why people get out of sorts and out of church? Their focus is wrong. If your focus is on me, I got bad news for you. I'm going to let you down. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to occasionally offend you. Occasionally, maybe you're talking to me and, and I've, I've got my attention elsewhere. I'm, I'm sorry. In advance, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that your focus is on me when it should be on Jesus. Yes. Looking unto Jesus. Now, that's not an excuse that you treat people like a jerk or anything like that. I think you understand what I mean. The key command to runners is your focus must be on Jesus Christ. It must be on Jesus Christ. And then it goes on to describe Him here. Who is this one that we're to focus upon, that we're to look to, that as we run our Christian race, as we live our Christian life, who is He? I'll tell you who He is. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. Amen. He's the generator of our faith. And one day, he's going he's 
going to take faith and make it sight in heaven. To God be the glory. And we're going to see Him with those nail prints that we made. Yeah. Yeah. And we're going to say, there He is. The one. The author. The finisher. The one who's worthy to focus on. Huh? Not only is He the author and the finisher, we see, we see the author there, but we see the attitude that He had. Not only the author, but the attitude. What's His attitude in verse 2? the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What do we see there in that attitude? We see, we see the idea of temporal pain versus eternal joy. Temporal pain. Jesus, and, and by the way, the pain that Jesus endured on the cross for those six hours has never been duplicated by any other human being. But he knew, his attitude was, this is going to lead to eternal joy for others. You know, one of the things that <clears throat> is not very popular anymore, but dads, it's still good parenting, moms, it's still good parenting, is delayed gratification. Delayed gratification. Saving for a goal. Uh, you know, eating, uh, what do they call them? Ketchup sandwiches, amen? <laughs> now nobody likes this. Does anybody like ketchup sandwiches? No, nobody does, amen? But if you had to, to, to reach a goal a little bit later, it's a great lesson, isn't it? To teach a young person to be able to. You see, I always think about Esau and Jacob. Remember when Esau gave away his birthright to Jacob? The birthright was something eternal. It was something spiritually precious. And you remember what he gave it up for? A bowl of beans. And sometimes, listen, sometimes we get awfully critical of Judas and his 30 pieces of silver, but we'd sell out God for a little less than that in our lives. Oh, listen. His attitude was, yes, there will be temporal pain, but one day there's going to be eternal joy. Well, that ought to be our attitudes as Christians. Temporal pain, yes, but eternal joy one day. So we see the author looking unto Jesus, the attitude. But then we see his actions. He endured the cross. Again, you have to know you have to know the crucifixion. It is not just something we preach about at Easter time. It is part of the cornerstone of our faith that Jesus Christ died on an old rugged cross to save sinners. And it, forgive me, that one up there is pretty smooth. It wasn't smooth. It was a piece of rough timber. And Jesus Christ had had his back raked open and bloody the Roman lash, the cat of nine tails, where they would take that, those pieces of leather and put pieces of broken pottery and sharp rocks, and the men who swung those were professional. They know how to do it. And after six hours, Jesus, with his hands nailed, was on that cross, raking his back up and down, and most crucifixion victims died of slow suffocation because literally gravity would press on their lungs and they would have to grab those nails and pull themselves up just to get a breath. 
never forget this. Salvation's free, but it's not cheap. Jesus Christ endured the cross. That was an action. Something else it says here about Jesus Christ. He not only endured the cross, but he despised the shame. It's interesting, if you look back just in Hebrews 11, there's a similar phrase that is used about Moses. In verse number 24, if you look at it with me there, it says, By faith Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, she had found him and raised him in, in the palace of Egypt. And, but he choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures, the greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. We see here in Jesus' actions that he despised the shame. You know what? He, 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 it, forgive me if we could say this. It, it didn't bother him that he was, forgive me ladies and gentlemen, he was crucified naked. It was part of the shame of Rome. They wanted you to, all the shame was to be on this victim. And it was to discourage people from bucking Rome's authority is really what it was. And there he was. And you know what? He despised the shame. If we could, he said, you know what? One day, one day, people are going to be in heaven. It's worth some shame. You know, one of the reasons why I love the Free Bibles Outreach is part of it, Brother Mike, is we, if we're not careful, we can insulate ourselves in this building. That's right. Yeah. And I'm all for this building. You understand. I've been trying to get people to come to church for 14 years. But it's out there where we bear the reproach of Christ. You know what that is? That means somebody might make fun of you. And you know what this says? We don't despise the person. We despise the fact that they do. It doesn't matter to me if somebody makes fun of me. It doesn't matter to me. People need the Lord. People need the Word of God. It doesn't matter. And so he, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. And then what else do you see here? I love this. He finished his task, didn't he? Remember the cross sayings, the beautiful cross sayings? Seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. First thing he said was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The second thing he said was to the thief on the cross, he said, Verily, thou shalt be with me today in paradise. The third thing he said was to John and to his mother, he said, Woman, behold thy son, son, behold thy mother. In essence, he said, John, take care of my mom. The fourth thing he said was, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? fifth thing he said was that the scriptures might be fulfilled was I thirst and the sixth thing he said was tetelestai it is finished he finished his race didn't he he finished his race so the cloud of witnesses the commands to runners Lay aside weights, leave sin behind, last in the run, look unto Jesus. The considerations to all in verse number three. Now I'll give you some application. What are the considerations to all? He says, For consider him, and you about Jesus here, 
that endured such contradiction of sinners. Number one, what should we consider? We should consider the contradiction of sinners that Jesus endured. What does that mean? It means they didn't like him. That means they hated him. That means they crucified him. And that means if you call yourself a Christian, they're not going to like you. If everybody likes you, there's a problem with your testimony. You don't have one. Now again, I'm not saying you have to, you have to just badger everybody. Not at all. But people ought to know you're a Christian. I worked the secular jobs. I knew what it was to have to at some point say, Hey fellas, let's watch our language. And listen, I took abuse for it. Oh, I remember I had one guy, oh my goodness, he, he just thought, he tried his best to get under my skin. And I was a new Christian at the time, so I just, I still had some flesh. Now, I still got flesh, but I really had it then. Amen? And I remember getting right in this guy's face, or he was shorter than I was, so we had a, we had a heart-to-head talk. Amen? And, uh, and I got about this close to him, and I said, you know what? You're not going to bother me. So you might as well stop. Yeah. So I, I'm not giving you that kind of power in my life. But the simple fact was, listen, sinners aren't going to like us. If they do, Jesus said, well unto you, and all men shall speak well of you. Yeah. So the consideration of sins, by the way, that has to do with treatment. Jesus himself said to his disciples in John chapter 15, he said, if they, if they hate the master... They're going to hate you for the master's sake. Yeah. And then he said, by the way, they don't hate you. They hate me. So, the contradiction of sinners. But I love this. How about the condescension of the Savior? Think about these sinners that crucified Jesus. You know, he created them. He created the tree that made the cross. That made the nails that were in his hands. When he said, I thirst, he did so knowing that he created every freshwater brook that has ever babbled or flowed. And yet, here they were, his creation was crucifying him. And yet, you know what he did? He reached out. That's what, see, we always think of condescension in, in, in like you know, somebody speaking with a condescending tone. Like a, a, condescension means to stoop down. Knowing Jesus stooped down and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He condescended as a little baby in a manger that we're getting ready to celebrate here in a month or so. He condescended. Every time he dealt with humanity, he was condescending. And his ultimate example of condescension is on the cross. He stooped down. He, he stooped down to help. There's no salvation without Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection. What condescension. And then, lastly, I'll give you the applications here. 
not only the contradiction of sinners and the condescension of the Savior, but the consideration of suffering. What does he say here? He said, he tells us to run with patience. This is running, running a long race. It's, it's suffering. It's, it's pressing through. And, and he says, if you're going to run your race, if, if you're going to finish your course with joy like Jesus did, he says in verse 3, For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. The consideration of suffering. The consideration of suffering. Part of this Christian race that we're running. Part of what Jesus here on the cross endured was something we don't like very much. And that's suffering. Whether it's suffering wrong, suffering that someone would speak ill of us, physical suffering, emotional suffering, mental suffering. He says here, you better consider that if you're going to run your race. There's going to be some suffering. Huh? I think about, we, we like athletic contests. We do. I, I, like, I like watching football. Nothing I like better on a Sunday afternoon than falling asleep to a good Lions game. Amen? I think good this year. Amen? But listen, we, we like those things. We, we enjoy those contests. Can I tell you this? Behind the scenes for every great athlete, there's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of getting up early. There's a lot of extra free throws. There's a lot of sprints where you're pulling the weights so that you can pull guys down the field late in the game. Yeah. There's a lot of squats for pitchers to make sure their legs are good at the end of the year. There's a lot of suffering. Part of our race is suffering. Let me give you some applications. Keys to finishing your race. The race is set before you. Amen? The race is set before me. So let me give you just... Three keys here, and, and by the way, he's not here today. I think he's with his folks. But I asked Joe Anto in our church. Joe Anto has run many 5Ks and, and half marathons, and I asked him. I said, "Well, Joe, give me some keys. Just give me, give me some points." And I took his points and and uh, kind of uh, uh, alliterated them. Uh, but the first thing you're going to have to do if you're going to finish your race with joy and here, well done, now good and faithful servant, is you're going to have to embrace the struggle. And people say, well, I don't want to be in the race. Well, too bad. If you're a Christian, you're in the race. Embrace the struggle. And what Brother Joe was getting at was like, you can't just show up on race day and race. He said, guys that do that end up on the side. Forgive me, they end up in the bushes. Amen? You know? He said, you got to put in the work and do the training. You know what? Each day, ladies and gentlemen... Can I, can I encourage you to, to do something? Three things. Do three things each day. Billy Sunday, if you said you'll do three things, you'll do these three things each day, you'll be a successful Christian. Read your Bible for 15 minutes, pray for 15 minutes, and try to share the gospel with somebody for 15 minutes. That's 45 minutes. It's not a lot of time. He says, if you do that, you'll be, that'll be 45 minutes many more than most Christians. Read your Bible, pray, witness, I can go further, come to church, give, you know, these parts. Listen, you've got to embrace the struggle. You've got to put the work in. Oh, Pastor, my faith is small. Have you been reading your Bible? No. You've got to put the work in. You've got to put the work in. You want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant, then start doing well. You're not just going to hear that by accident. It takes work. 
Embrace the struggle. Boy, this one is so true. Not only embrace the struggle, work and training. Exercise self-control, that's will and temperance. Not only embrace the struggle, work and training. Exercise self-control, that's will and temperance. Hugh Howland said this to me years ago. One of the greatest, most wise statements I've ever heard in my life. He said, Pastor, the key to life is discipline. And he was right. He's right. I want it. Somebody said, somebody, somebody, somebody says, the key or the. I'm always a little nervous. I'm like, well, you know, it could be this, could be that, you know, the. But he's right. You know what the key to reading the Bible is? Discipline. You know what the key to prayer is? Discipline. Key to being in church when you're supposed to be? Just discipline. Just discipline. If you're going to run your race, you're going to have to exercise self-control. Listen, forgive me. Runners, runners don't choose between good food and bad food. They choose between good food and best food. Yes. Exactly. Athletes. Now, I know there's some athletes out there that tell, oh, I eat 58 cheeseburgers. Yeah, and then they bench press 780 pounds and burn it all off and turn it into muscle. Yeah, I get all that. You're going to have, listen, in your Christian life, you're going to have to exercise some self-control. We're not real big on that. So there's two things that we do. One we do too much of and one we don't do enough of. We eat too much and we don't exercise enough. You know, that can be spiritually true as well. Embrace the struggle. Work and training. Exercise self-control. That's real and temperance. And then exude steadiness. I call that want to and toughness. And again, I've mentioned this. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not a sprint. You, just, you keep going. You know, we miss the Kellys today. And I appreciate that, Miss Judy. I love what you said. As soon as I don't see them, I get nervous. Why? Because they're so faithful. They're so steady. You look at those precious people, and they are the example of a Christian race. Mr. Ruth Marie, example of running your Christian, not sprinting, not sprinting, just patiently running, enduring, looking unto Jesus, laying aside weights. And, listen, the race requires, and by the way, it's your race. Your race is not my race. It's a personal race, amen? But it requires really three things, and I'll end with these. It requires determination. It requires discipline. And it requires dedication. As a Christian, there are some things we're going to have to say no to. I'm not doing that. I'm just not going to do that. Why not? There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just not going to do it. Oh, you, all your life you'll have people that say, why not? Yeah. Or why? Uh, that's what I think, Mr. Merrill. Just, why should I? Yeah. I belong to Christ. I, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm just, you know what? I want to I wanna please God with my life. Amen. I was talking to somebody, a preacher friend of mine, and we were talking about the ultimate goal. You know, the ultimate goal uh, of the church. What's the ultimate goal is to just see thousands of people saved, and I'm all for getting people saved. The ultimate goal in 2 Corinthians 5, 9 that whether present or absent we may be accepted of him. 
My goal in life as I run my race is to please the author and finisher of my faith. And if that means I shouldn't do some things and I should lay aside some weights, then I need to do that. Yeah. And I need to not do those things. Amen. Boy, the race that is set before us. You've got a race set before you. You want to hear, well done, now good and faithful servant? Well, you're going to have to look at those commands. You're going to have to lay aside some weights. Hey, you're going to have to leave sin behind. I don't care what the world says about sin. The Holy Spirit in the Bible will reveal sin. You just need to leave it behind. But what if other people do it? It doesn't matter if other people do it. If the Holy Spirit convicts you about it, leave it behind. You're going to have to not only leave sin behind and lay aside weights, you're going to have to lastingly run. Remember, this isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. And what's the key? Looking on to Jesus. Keep Him as your focus. You do that, you'll live a successful Christian life. Father, bless now.